And I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we're looking at a passage that I believe is tailor-made for occasions like this. Oftentimes, uh, pastors will preach this as their final parting sermon from ministry um, or when they're leaving from one one place to the next. And it's a beloved passage for me. I think we've been talking the last several weeks about just sort of our core values, you know, what the early church was devoted to. And uh, this is a reminder as well, as as Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, he wants to leave them with some instruction and some reminders about how he ministered among them, how he taught them, and and it, it's ultimately about pointing us to the centrality of Christ, the centrality of worship um, in, in this service. But I wanted to start with one of my more embarrassing ministry decisions. It happened while I was preaching on the circuit. That's what they called it when you're in seminary and you preach um, in different churches um, that, are, that are small and they don't have a full-time pastor or they're in transition. Um, uh, and so they, they just have a, a list of seminary students who are available to go and, and preach on this circuit, right? So you can't preach at the same place more than once, but usually you kind of get into a rotation where you're invited back uh, to these places. This was one church that I was never invited back to, and uh, it'll, be, it'll be clear why. Um, it was in May at the end of a semester, and I had spent many hours writing a paper on Judges 19, and as a seminary student, oftentimes you would take the things that you're working on uh, during your studies and apply them right in, in the pulpit. So you would take something that you'd been writing a paper on all week and, and instead of you know, doubling up the work, you would use that as your exegesis work to then, to then write a sermon off of that. And so Judges 19, if you're, maybe some of you are familiar with that, is where a Levite traveled beyond um, a foreign city in order to stay the night at Gibeah, which is a city that belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. Right? He, he passes over the foreign city because he doesn't trust that, he'll be, you know, that they'll be safe there. And so they, they enter into, they, they get to Gibeah where they decide to stay the night. And there, one of the worst descriptions of an, of an event happens in, in Judges 19 in scripture. Right? It's called, I, I called it, I titled it, The Darkest Chapter in the Bible. In a nutshell, I'll just, I'll just summarize what happens in one sentence. The Levite's concubine was abused all night. She dies, and then the man chops her body up and sends a portion to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, it's not the most obvious passage to choose as a special sermon <laughs> when you're visiting a place that you've never been and trying to show that you're called to ministry. Um, I mentioned it was in May, but what I didn't realize until it was far too late was that it happened to also be Mother's Day. <laughs> um, yeah, so... I, I questioned my call to ministry after that <laughs> decision. This is my last sermon as your pastor, but I did think that it would be a little safer to select this morning's text uh, from a passage that is made for occasions like this instead of being 
risky or creative. When, when Paul gave his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, he reviewed the priorities of pastoral ministry. And so we see here much of what we've been talking about and what, much of what has built the foundation of the ministry model for this church, what the leadership has uh, worked on together over the last decade um, to provide just a foundation as you move forward in search of a new pastor. Paul reminds the elders how he taught and modeled a God-honoring shepherding ministry for them. And it's a model that encouraged me as, as, as often as I failed to live up to that model. It was the, the one that I, I looked to. How did Paul serve and, and minister among his people, among this congregation in Ephesus that he spent three years with? And what we'll see here is that in those three years, he developed such a love and affection for the people that um, it was, it was, ministry was easy for him. It wasn't a challenge. He, he wasn't burdened by the task. He, he enjoyed it. Um, and so in that sense, the, the people were as kind as they could be for him to minister there. And that's not to say that it was easy. We know in Ephesus, he had significant challenges ministering there with antagonism from without and within, but he loved the people well. And so I hope that this, this passage would be an encouragement for the session here, for the congregation, and for any future ministers. But Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey as we come to this text. You can imagine the, the physical and emotional strain uh, that he's going through after an all-night worship service. In fact, I, I thought about going with the passage previously and just preaching until I, until I couldn't speak anymore, you know, just going on and, you know, we're, we don't, we're not on an upper, in an upper room, so everyone be safe if you fell asleep throughout it. But, but that's not what happened with Paul. When Paul preached the previous night, he went through this entire, preached all the way until um, Eutychus falls down and dies, falls asleep during his teaching and, and, and dies, and he goes and and, and the Lord raises him from the dead through Paul's miraculous healing and goes back up, completes the worship service, gives them the Lord's Supper, and then walks 20 miles. That's what we find out before uh, we get to the, the text that we'll be reading. He, he decides not to get on the boat that the rest of his companions are going on. He decides, I'm going to walk. And we can wonder why he decided to walk 20 miles south to Assos rather than board the ship with the rest of his companions. It seems to me that he needed some time with the Lord. He wanted some quiet. He wanted some time to reflect and time to just commune with God, to be refreshed, strengthened for what he knew lied ahead for him. Whatever we make of his decision to... to take that journey, which clearly would have taken him all day, walking that distance. We know that he was physically driven for ministry. It wasn't as if he was, he was burning out with all of the work that he was doing. He was, in fact, fired up for the gospel. He was ready to take on the next challenge. And so he knew that also churches without strong servant leaders will close their doors. And so he calls the elders for one last word, we know that he, in fact, passed over Ephesus. Maybe he, he doesn't stop there because he knows that a, a, a riot might break out again if he stops there as it did the last time in Acts chapter 19. 
but he moves, he goes on, but he doesn't want to miss the opportunity to speak to the elders one last time and to encourage them. And this is a passage that we've read anytime we've done a, a, a home visit. Um, if you've received one of those from us, then you know we usually begin by reading this same text and, and explaining why we are doing what we're doing, why we are wanting to meet together and encourage you and proclaim the gospel in your home, because that's what we see modeled for us in Paul's ministry to them. Every church, what we'll find here is every church needs to have men of compassion and courage to oversee the flock. And so let us pray that we would be privileged in this congregation to receive such men. Let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the many reminders that we have of what ministry entails. We don't need to mimic other churches. We don't need to follow the model of some marketing guru who tells us how to grow, tells us how to mature. Lord, we want to trust in your word. We want to proclaim the truth of the gospel and we know that that is powerful and that Christ is the one who builds his church. And he's the one who protects her and defends her. And we know that he does, through, he does so through qualified men who have been ordained, filled with the spirit for the task of leading and shepherding a flock. And Lord, you have flocks that are scattered around the world and you've raised up men to lead those churches. And so, Lord, we trust that you have your hand upon this church, as you always have. You've always provided. You've always cared. You've always showed that you are preserving this church. And so we trust that you will continue to do so, and that as we lift ourselves up to you, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of this text and that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted and comforted by the truth of the gospel once again and that you would be glorified as each one of us are edified and equipped for the work that you've called us to. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Acts chapter 20 verses 17 through 38. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said, he said to them, You yourselves know that I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
And now behold, I know that none of you among that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first point in your outline is that shepherds serve the flock. Shepherds serve the flock. Paul knew that stopping in Ephesus would have delayed his trip to Jerusalem. We read about that in verse 16, which we, we didn't read, but it's just the verse prior. And so he knew it would be difficult to get away. So maybe he expected that civil disturbance to rise up again that you can read about in Acts 19, 21 through 41. When he came to Miletus, Paul called the Ephesian elders to meet with him there. And so it's unclear if he had planned that from the beginning or if he was compelled. You know, you wonder, did he pass over that intending to rush on to Jerusalem? Because we know that he's in a hurry. And then after he gets a little bit of distance as he passes Ephesus, he just thinks, I can't, I can't ignore this opportunity I have, or I can't, I need to call them. I need to reach out to them. And you could almost sense there's this, this affection that won't let him skip over this location. And so it compels him to reach out. And that mutual affection that these men shared for one another, as well as their sense of leadership responsibility, provides a strong model for every session, especially the session of, of this church. And you know that, that the leaders of this church have, have served for many years, along with Michael. Your elders have coordinated every work day that we've had in this building, which has been many. Um, we'll probably have some more to come. <laughs> uh, they've ensured that this building was maintained so that we would worship in an environment with minimal distractions. And many of you have joined that work. And now there's a, another group, the Pastoral Search Committee, that is serving this flock through extensive giving of their time in search of your next pastor. 
And so I'm grateful. We could point to several examples like that of how each one of you has, has used your time, your resources, your talents to serve volunta voluntarily, to commit, uh, to commit that to the Lord's use. And so I want to just consider three highlights from Paul's ministry and his service to, to the Ephesians, to the Christians there in Ephesus. Look at verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. He lived among the Ephesians. He was fundamentally concerned for their souls, which made him emotionally invested in his ministry. We, we read later on that he preached the whole Christ, the whole counsel of God's word, and he preached the whole Christ to the whole person. He, he acknowledges them with tears, it says. He wasn't just preaching doctrine and and preaching to their mind he was preaching to their heart he was calling them to be moved by the truth of god's word that that it wouldn't just stay there and as head knowledge puffing them up but it would, it would return to god it re resound to god in in acts of worship and so he he was impacted by the message that he proclaimed there's this desire i have right now to be very careful with my emotions Right? Because I know that if I, if I get too deep, too invested, then I'm just not going to be able to say much. I'll just be sitting here quietly as you guys are going, this is, this is going to take the rest of the day. Maybe that's why Paul couldn't get through it for you know, preached all night. But when Paul preached, it was, it was all of him that he gave to his people. Right? He was invested. He was truly engaged with the word of God. He was filled with the spirit, and he was proclaiming that truth boldly, regardless of the consequences. And it oftentimes left him lying dead in the street as he proclaimed the truth. Right? Left for dead, I should say. So we know Paul wept with those who wept. He served the Lord with humility, with tears and trials, as you read in verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And so I would just say it's been the highest privilege to be a part of, of your spiritual maturity in this church. To contribute in some small way to what the Lord is doing in your heart. To give you a love for his word. that goes well beyond and just preparing for another debate or preparing for an argument. But that is, that is rooted in what the Spirit is doing in each one of our hearts to knit us to Christ and to one another. We also see that Paul is self-forgetful. I 
this does the opposite effect. It draws attention to me. <sighs> I was telling my kids, it's not like I put cry at this point in the, <laughs> the sermon notes. Verse 24 says, but I do not account my life of any, any value, nor is precious. myself. If only I may finish my course. I'm going to call on you guys to read these verses. Um, If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, he's, he, he didn't want the attention to himself. He wanted to point to Christ. And that's what, what finishing well meant to him. Was that they wouldn't be, you know, constantly uh, remembering all that, that, that Paul sacrificed, that Paul gave, but, but how Christ worked through him. And we can't forget ourselves unless something else becomes more important. I've told many of you to read The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, a sermon by Thomas Chalmers. It's an excellent reminder of that principle, that if you want to overcome some, some sinful trial, some sinful challenge that you're facing in life, it's focused on, on sin, but it's, it's saying to ex- there's an expulsive power of a new affection. A new affection can, can cause you to overcome that sin and to replace it with something. Now, in a lot of cases, what the world offers is a new, a new sin. Just replace a, a more a, you know, disastrous kind of sin with a sin that's, that's less, it, less of an impact, but it's replacing sin with sin. Obviously, it's only the gospel that provides us the new affection that ca- causes us to overcome sin, to mortify sin, and to vivify the righteousness that we have been given in Christ. It's that Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So the gospel captures our affections so that sin becomes less enticing and the enjoyment of Christ's blessing becomes our aim. That's the gift of self-forgetfulness. It's, it's only accomplished by the work of the gospel. And then we see that Paul's ministry was sacrificial. In verses 33 through 35, he talks about not coveting money, not only provided for himself, but for his partners in ministry too. And he was, he was sacrificial. He gave. He, he, he worked for, the, for, the, for his living, and not only for himself, but for, the, for everyone who was on that team while he was in Ephesus. And then he ministered among them pretty much in the rest of his time. I'm not sure when he slept. I love Jim Elliott's quote. I, I heard this in high school, I think, and I, I've, it's been one of my favorite quotes ever since. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool to give what he cannot keep. All of our possessions, our resources in this life are things that we cannot keep. But we cannot lose what we have in Christ. The blessings and, and, and the, 
the rewards that we have by belonging to him. And so at the age of 29, Jim Elliott made the ultimate sacrifice. He was, along with four other men, uh, missionaries in Ecuador to the Hurani people. I think they call them the Alka people, which was just the, in their language, a term for savage. That's what people called them. They were the savages because they were merciless. And so they tried to reach out to them through incremental ways, getting to know them, show, show that they were caring for them and, and, and wanting to get to know them and, and without any sense of, um, you know, a, they weren't a threat to them. But when some people came back to the tribe, there was a group of 10 that were probably out wreaking havoc somewhere else, came back and, and saw these five um, white men in their tribe, they slaughtered them. So we see that sometimes it does call for the ultimate sacrifice in ministry. We also need to be content with just the ordinary, humble service to God, where we are called to be faithful with what God has given us. And so these aren't three distinct characteristics. They build off one another. Those who prioritize spiritual maturity will be more self-forgetful and sacrificial with their possessions and be willing to give for the kingdom. And so once a shepherd is convinced of his need to serve the flock, he begins to feed it, and these next three will be quicker, Lord willing. (laughs) The shepherd feeds the flock. Shepherds feed the flock. Feeding the flock involves declaring, teaching, and testifying. Look at verses 20 and 21. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So declaring, teaching, testifying, all using our words to, to, to proclaim the truth of God's will. And so it needs to be bold and compassionate. Paul's appeal to repent and believe the gospel, he says, were made with tears. There was an urgency and a sincerity in his preaching. His confidence in God's sovereignty, Dennis Johnson says, never bred in Paul a cold indifference to his hearers. Someone who can say the same thing in the same way to anyone that he's speaking to. That, that wasn't Paul. Paul wasn't coldly indifferent to his hearers. He was invested in their lives so that he could minister among them precisely what they needed to hear through, obviously, the work of the Spirit, leading him and guiding him. And so this led to his warm reception by the Ephesians. Paul's compassion wasn't manufactured. He didn't, he didn't just say, I need to raise my voice here and lower it there. He wasn't a, you know, a he, he wasn't even known for his rhetorical powers. And he just knew the gospel, and he was invested in proclaiming it. And may that always be the case in this pulpit, that the pastor would be filled with a loving affection for all who would hear. Second thing we see that the context of, of that proclamation of the gospel was done both in public and in private 
His ministry was not eight to five, Monday through Friday. We know he was also tent making, so he was, he was doing that throughout the day. He wasn't working just 40 hours a week. Paul was available, and he was available to feed the sheep, even at times when it might not have been convenient for him. And a shepherd is called to preach in public and in private. And you should know that your pastor is willing to do that. And then the content of that message. Notice in verse 20 and verse 27, compare those two verses. Verse 20 says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And look at verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What's profitable? Every word that God has revealed to us. All of it. Don't shy away from the warning passages. Don't shy away from the Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms. Preach it all. Recognize that, that you know, where, where we are most uncomfortable is probably what we need to hear. We should be convicted by God's word because we know that we're not perfect. We need to be challenged. But we also need to be reminded of the comfort that comes to us in the gospel. And clearly that's what Paul continued to bring them back to. He preached the whole counsel of God just like Jesus did in Luke 24 so that it would point to Christ in the gospel. So that he could proclaim the mercies of God's grace. And so Paul wasn't afraid to warn and rebuke his listeners. We read in chapter 19, verse 9, that he even went out in public, the halls of Tyrannus, and, and, and it says he proclaimed to everyone there. And it seems like he was doing that five to six days per week, several hours. Paul preached the Old Testament to an audience mixed with believers and unbelievers. You can see that in verse 21, 24, 25, and 32. So gospel ministry is more important than life itself, he says, at least in his life. And what he had been called to was far more important than his own life. And so I pray that your next pastor strives to testify like Paul and that he never compromises the truth. Spurgeon said, I received some years ago orders from my master to stand at the, door, at the foot of the cross until he comes. He has not come yet but I mean to stand there until he does. Faithful shepherds will feed Christ's sheep by preaching the word. They know that is how people are edified, how they receive the assurance of their salvation. And so that's the primary instruction that Jesus gave Peter after restoring him, right? He had denied Jesus. Now Jesus is resurrected and, and meets with Peter and he restores him. Do you love me? What does he tell him after Peter says, yes, of course I love you? Feed my sheep. That's the priority. That was the priority for Peter. And so may the proclamation of the gospel remain central in the life and ministry of every pastor who fills this pulpit. So despite serving and feeding the sheep, they still get injured. And so we see that from this passage also that shepherds tend the flock. Verse 28 Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So he says, pay careful attention, first of all, to yourselves. 
This is for the leadership. 1 Timothy 4, 16, keep, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. That's the role of the session. The session is to watch out for their own lives, watch out for their own conduct and their own um, understanding and, and doctrinal uh, beliefs, and guard the pulpit. Lead by example. Robert Murray McChain, minister of Dundee, declared, the greatest need of my people is my own holiness. I would say that's hyperbole. <laughs> but he's, he's pointing to just the responsibility that a pastor has to be exemplary in examining themselves, living a life of piety before his flock. But then notice the other responsibility. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. None were neglected. They were responsible for caring for everyone, the young, the weak, the corrupt, the backsliders, the strong, the mature, the immature. And each one of those needs a different kind of care. You don't treat the, the backslider in the same way that you treat the corrupt, right, the, the wolf. You don't treat the mature in the same way that you treat the, the immature. Sheep need correction. They need direction. And they need comfort. Jeremiah warns that the righteous branch will replace leaders who neglect the flock to which God has entrusted them. Jeremiah 23, 1 through 6. So the session does have a burden. The leadership has a burden to do these, to, to take care, to watch. And the pattern of Paul's ministry corrects wayward pastors today. Right? His words and methods rebuke pastors who spend too much time catering to the goats of this culture. Notice where the elders are to, are to focus their attention. Yourselves, all the flock. Not all the world. Paul's ministry corrects our exaggerated interest in worldly matters. It calls us back to the, the primary task of caring for his sheep. And so as we give our attention to caring for the flock, their needs become the focus of our compassion. And so I will be fond of the memories of serving alongside the session of this church. Um, we have faced significant challenges over the 10 years that we've labored together, but I have never once felt like I was doing so alone, that I didn't have men alongside me who were just as invested in your lives as I was. And so Ray, Matt, and Tom have been loyal companions in gospel ministry. And you should also recognize all of our families who have sacrificed a significant number of hours to allow us to tend to the needs of this flock over those years. Out of our growing love and desire to protect the sheep, we will seek to guard them from the external and internal threats. And so we'll close with this. Shepherds guard the flock. Shepherds guard the flock. In The Patriot, one of my favorite Mel Gibson movies, Reverend Oliver joins the militia and he declares, a shepherd must tend his flock and at times fight off the wolves. I'm not going to say that's great exegesis because <laughs> he wasn't referring to joining a militia. But the words themselves are true. We are called to fight off the wolves at times. And wolves show up both outside 
trying to make their way in, and they can arise from within. Look at verses 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. So if they're coming in, then they're from the outside coming in. Not sparing the flock and from among your own selves. Remember, he's not talking to all of the Ephesian members, right? All of the Christians. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Fierce wolves will bring false teaching from outside. Corrupt elders can arise from within. And the flock needs to be guarded from disingenuous leaders. And then he says, verse 31, be alert. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And he's not just, it wasn't that he was being harsh and cruel. He was protecting them. He was guarding them. He knew the challenges that they would face. And so he was constantly admonishing them. Wolves typically come disguised as sheep, right? Revelation 2, 4 to 5 gives us a look into the future of Ephesus. Probably about 44 years later, um, around 80, 96, if that's when Revelation was written. If you take an earlier approach to the authorship or, or the, the writing of Revelation, then it would have been within 16, 17 years. So somewhere in that range, the Ephesians receive a harsh rebuke. And this is what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Paul warned them for three years. But less than five decades later, Jesus himself rebukes them with a message from heaven. We don't know exactly why they had lost their first love, but it would seem appropriate for the leadership to shoulder the blame. Apparently, Paul's warnings and three years of admonishment went unheeded, and his warning was on the verge of coming true within a few generations. And so their zealous enthusiasm had indeed become cold indifference. This is why we must take accountability and repentance seriously. Because elders are protecting the flock from those outside. This isn't optional. And it's not incompatible with the Great Commission. They must be willing to lay down their lives if necessary. And it's no small task. And so we take their responsibility lightly at the risk of undermining the message of the gospel that we're called to proclaim if we do not warn of the threats outside the church. But we also need to recognize that even within the church there are threats. And on paper, we've talked about this, that our denomination does take accountability seriously. We just came back from a, a wonderful general assembly where once again we have voted overwhelmingly in favor of kind of strengthening our doctrine and the practice, even among those who are qualified 
um, men to lead as elders or deacons in the church. And we see over and over again that our denomination handles that well on paper, but in practice it seems to be so much more complicated and rarely seen. Right? Where, where people are not called to account for their sin. And so it's not complicated, but it does require courage. As the leadership goes, so goes the church and all who are in it. And so guarding the peace and the purity of the church and preserving the gospel truth is worth risking our own name and reputation for. So, in summary, the shepherds must serve, feed, tend, and guard the flock. May the Lord raise up men who demonstrate this kind of love and sacrifice. And may they also recognize that their dependence upon the Spirit they, they must depend upon the Spirit to accomplish that task. Dennis Johnson says this, With this weighty duty, however, comes the heartening promises of Jesus. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And his assurance, I will build my church. We are not orphans left to our own devices. For Jesus comes to us and accompanies us in the spirit of truth. And so we must run to Jesus for forgiveness and help if we are to fulfill this calling. And Lord willing, we will partner to that end for the rest of our lives. Let's ask the Lord for his help in doing so. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this body, for this church, this community. You've called me as their pastor for the last 10 years, and it has been a great privilege to minister to them. Lord, we know that you are at work. We know that you have continued to do your work even when there have been doubts and challenges and struggles. Lord, you have preserved and protected us. And we trust that you will continue to do so over the next several months. We pray that you would give guidance and wisdom to the search committee. Pray that you would lead them to precisely the right man for the task. And we pray that he would be devoted to the very things that we see modeled and exemplified in the ministry of Paul. That he would love this flock well. That he would love you and your word well. And that he would model that love in this pulpit every Sunday. Ultimately, it's not about him. It's not about me. But you have called us as under-shepherds to do the work that Christ is accomplishing. And so as his hands and feet, Lord, we are all called to contribute to that work. As this church is without a pastor, Lord, we pray that, that many would rise up to the challenge of filling those gaps and loving one another well and pray that they would experience unity compassion Lord help them to have eyes for those who are struggling for the weak 
to the poor. Give them compassion, but Lord, also give them courage to proclaim the truth boldly. May the session be united as they lead and guide. And may this congregation be united as they, as they agree to call that next minister. We pray that in your perfect timing, he might come. And Lord, we just want to celebrate today. We want to remember with gratitude what you've accomplished in these last 10 years. Pray that we would appreciate the fellowship and the conversation that we have and that that would carry into Lord, the rest of our lives, that we would remember with gratitude all of all that you've done. And Lord, we pray that we would grow, that we would mature. And Lord, the, we all have areas of our lives where we need to be sharpened. And we have areas where we need to be softened. Lord, we we want to be considerate. We want to center our lives around worship and around the, the, the word that you've given us. And so, Lord, may as we gather together and sit under the preaching of your word, may we take your word with us throughout the week, meditate upon it, and then reach out to one another in love. That the kind of affection we would feel and maybe the, the kind of affection that we have today would only grow so that we would be willing to lay down our lives for one another because we've seen it modeled in what Christ did for us. Pray that we would respond, Lord, in obedience to the preaching of your word. And as we gather around the table, Lord, as a flock, we pray that you would do a supernatural work through a very ordinary means of grace. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.